Good morning everyone and welcome. We're looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 64 verses 1 to 9. This passage from Isaiah is part of a prayer which started in chapter 63 verse 7 and continues to the end of chapter 64. Isaiah is writing in the context of great suffering. He foresees the exile in Babylon and pictures God's people there, far from home and feeling forgotten. Everything is unfamiliar. The idolatrous nations seem to have won. So where is God? First of all, in chapter 63, he rehearses some of the history of Israel. God acted decisively to rescue them from Egypt. But now that seems long ago. God chose Israel. Yet they're trampled on by nations who don't know God at all. This resonates in my own heart. We also are a nation who have known God's work, excuse me, in years gone by, yet now we are dominated by godless ideology. So the outburst of verse 1 of chapter 64 is understandable. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh, that God would act and intervene in our nation. Give us a good shake up and turn things around. Perhaps if the mountains shook, people would take notice. I love Isaiah's passion in this prayer. It's much more than pious thoughtery. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has heard, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Isaiah knows that Israel's God, our God, is the only God. We worship the God who made heaven and earth. Isaiah's repeatedly reminded us of God's claim. He is the God who has revealed himself in his dealings with Israel and in gathering the church from all the nations. Now here's the jewel in the middle of our passage in verse 4. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This is the nature of our God. He isn't asking us to help him. He wants to help us. This is where the Bible's revelation of God is unique. God did not sit in heaven waiting for us to love him. He came to earth and sought us out. He became one of us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He suffered and died to bring us back into friendship with God. He conquered death and sits at God's right hand, waiting until all his enemies submit. God makes an agreement with his people. He is our God. He acts on our behalf. The other week we watched Aled Jones on Songs of Praise talking about his faith journey. Perhaps you saw it too. Sadly, he had little to tell. For him, faith seems to be all about the music and good vibes. He talked enthusiastically about his latest recording of an album which celebrates the common ground of all religions. And we were treated to a glorious mixed track of all creatures of our God and King alongside some Muslim texts cleverly set by Howard Goodall. Alid said that fundamentally all religions are the same. Musically, I found this rather wonderful, but spiritually it's deceptive and disastrous. All religions are not the same. 
our ideas about who God are, God is, are different. And the whole story of the Bible is at odds with religions which deny the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage us to save ourselves by our religious practice and good works. A religious mishmash is absurd. So what has gone wrong? Isaiah continues, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and has given us over to our sins. I would not want to suggest that this pandemic is directly a punishment for sin, and certainly individuals who get it are no more guilty than others who stay well. But as a society, we have sinned against God's ways and incurred God's wrath. God cannot tolerate evil, and that is clearly shown to be his nature as well. Sadly, there's been no national repentance. Not even churches have called us to repent. In verse 7, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. Our nation is not yet sufficiently desperate to turn back to God. We Christians are not yet sufficiently desperate to strive in prayer and lay hold of God for our nation. So is there any hope? Are we condemned to sink into godlessness? Will the church die without trace? Surely not. Verse 8. You, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. We who know God are called to repentance. We are his workmanship. We're called to continue to acknowledge our creatureliness. We're God's creation. We must submit to him and his ways. This is a call to faith and obedience and to hope. During the current pandemic, I've been disappointed by the lack of any national encouragement to prayer. There has been no national day of prayer, such as occurred in the Second World War. Of course, in our multicultural society, a call to Christian prayer might be deemed offensive to those of other faiths and none. But surely we might have been urged to pray to our gods, whoever they may be, but not even that. Places of worship have been closed so that worship has become private and hidden instead of open, joyous proclamation. We have missed meeting, yes, but more importantly, our voices have been muted. It is now, temporarily we hope, a criminal offence for us to meet for public worship. Our church leaders have called us to pray, both the Church of England and the Evangelical Alliance and many other church groups have urged Christians to pray. But I found the prayer suggestions curiously flabby. The focus on our current physical and emotional needs. There is an absence of any passion for God to be honoured as he should be. There's little about repentance or returning to God and little concern for his glory 
or for people to discover and follow Jesus. Back to that line in verse 4, God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We need to be people who wait on the Lord. How do we do it? Firstly, we must make prayer our default position. In all the routines of our lives, we must commit our way to the Lord. It's so easy for us to rely on our own wit and wisdom without pausing to seek God. This doesn't have to mean a session of fasting and prayer about whether or not to cook dinner today, but it does mean a daily acknowledgement that God is watching and is ready to help. It means companionship with him, practising his presence, allowing him to open our minds to his thoughts and prompting. It means making our lives about worshipping him. Waiting on God also means longer times of prayer and thought. It may be there's a bigger decision that needs to be made or an ongoing issue which we're struggling with, as we are in this pandemic. Then one of two things may apply. Either God shows us a course of action and we move forward taking the first step he's shown us and trusting that more will follow. Or sometimes we see no way forward and then we have to step back and leave things with him, trusting him to work things out in his own time. All of this meshes together with repentance, turning away from all we know to be wrong. He promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it meshes together with faith, the simple trust that our Creator God is competent and willing to come to our help. So let's wait on the Lord. That would be a good way to start the new church year, a suitable way to start Advent. I end with a verse from Micah 7 verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Amen.